Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. How are you? Good. I feel like we're we're kind of back to a semi-normal week here with the court. We've had things happening. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, we've had opinions in argued cases. We just got word that there will be additional opinions come out um, this coming Monday, which I think is probably expected considering that justices seem to be sl- slightly sluggish in, in terms of their pace of releasing opinions this term. Yeah, that's right. Um, as of after this week's opinions that, that came out, um, we have about, I believe, 35 opinions to go, which is a bit behind what we're, you know, kind of used to seeing for comparison's sake. Around this week in May last year, we had 29 opinions to go, um, according to our, our data team and kind of in-house data statistics. That's right. And this is all happening at a time when the court is hearing fewer and fewer cases each year. So something apparently is gumming up the works. I I wonder if this slow pace has anything to do with all the external noise surrounding the Supreme Court, and specifically maybe some of the fallout of this leaked opinion in the Dobbs case. I mean, the justices aren't immune from, you know, things in the outside world kind of affecting their daily work. I, I recall during when the pandemic kind of broke out, that was a famously uh, slow term, and they ended up not being able to get rid of all their opinions and decide them until like several days into July. So maybe something similar is happening here. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's hard to say, right? I mean, I feel like the slower pace has been happening since, frankly, before Dobbs, but I I can't imagine that's not causing a a bit of a a kerfuffle in in procedures. (laughs) So speaking of... um, Jimmy, I know you uh, were listening in to uh, some comments made recently by Justice Thomas on the leak. Uh, Do you want to share kind of what he's been saying? That's right. So last week we talked about one public appearance that he had mentioned where I kind of likened him to a Rodney Dangerfield saying that the younger generation doesn't really respect the institution um, anymore. And we got some additional kind of eyebrow raising comments from Justice Thomas, just a day after we recorded last week's episode on Friday, where he appeared in Dallas at the old Parkland conference, during which he made some very poignant remarks about kind of how this leak has changed internal deliberations and internal relations at the Supreme Court. The institution that I'm a part of, uh, if someone said that one line of one opinion would be leaked by anyone and you would say that oh that's impossible no one would ever do that there's such a uh, belief in the rule of law a belief in the court a belief in what we were doing that that was verboten it was beyond anyone's understanding or at least anyone's uh, imagination that someone would do that and look where we are where now that trust or that belief is gone forever. Um, the, and when you lose that trust, especially in the institution that I'm in, uh, it changes the institution fundamentally. Uh, you begin to look over your shoulder. It's like kind of an infidelity uh, that you can explain it, but you can't undo it. 
I don't know, Natalie, that kind of supports my theory that uh, maybe some of these extracurriculars are kind of gumming up the works a little bit. I mean, possibly it's hard to get your work done and find consensus in some of these cases when you, 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 you think that the institution is possibly collapsing all around. You don't have to comment on that if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, everyone from the justices all the way down to the lowliest staffers is probably just you know kind of sidelined by this right and and kind of the uproar that it's that it's causing at the court um for one thing that it's not seeming to uh disrupt so far is clerk hiring because we got some news anyway uh this week uh from david ladd uh kind of known legal industry observer who is known for tracking also scotus clerk hires um and he reveals that uh Incoming Justice Contagia Brown Jackson has hired four four clerks, um, and she, that she seems to be following in Breyer's footsteps. In that her pool is fairly diverse. You know, it's two women. One uh, one of the four is a black clerk. One of the four is an Asian American clerk. Um, and there's also diversity in experience, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, two are coming from big law, specifically Morrison and Foster and Hogan Lovells. Um, one is currently an associate law professor. And, and the last is a pu- an appellate public defender who founded uh, law clerks for workplace accountability. So it's kind of like very stellar resumes here coming from from these clerks yeah when we talk about clerks we're not just talking about the you know the the kind of behind the scenes staffers who help the justices with their work it's very important work obviously but we're also talking about you know future leaders of the 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 legal industry you know these are positions very prestigious they uh people go on to you know illustrious careers in the law whether at private firms whether in the public sector um, or possibly even on the bench one day. So that's why I think it's really interesting to pay attention to this conversation around, you know, diversity, not just in demographic diversity on the on the uh, among the Supreme Court law clerks, but also uh, diversity of professional experience. Katanji Brown Jackson herself kind of was a you know a, a former Supreme Court clerk and went on to become a public defender, and obviously that helped her get to the position that she's at today where she's the incoming newest justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, so kudos to uh, David Latt on on that scoop. I know that that's, that's his standard uh, uh, area of uh, expertise and inside knowledge is in the, in the clerk hiring pool. But why don't we move along to, you know, what we've been talking about, and that is the two opinions that we got this week in argued cases that I thought were each pretty interesting in their own right. Natalie, do you want to set up the first one for us? That's right. Um, So the first opinion we're going to talk about is um, in the case Patel versus Garland. Um, This one's pretty significant. It, It significantly narrowed the scope of immigration court decisions that federal appeals courts can review. Um, So before I go too deep, you know, this one, like many immigration court cases that end up at the Supreme Court can be a bit in the weeds. So I'm going to try to keep this uh, as simple as I can. Um, Basically, in a divided 5-4 ruling, uh, the justices said federal courts, when considering requests for deportation relief, may not review factual findings made by immigration officers. Um, One important note to bear in mind as we talk about this case is that immigration judges are not Article III judges. They operate under the GOJ, so they would be considered immigration officers in this context that we're talking about. Um, So Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote the opinion 
Um, you know, I know we've talked previously that we, you know, haven't had a ton of chances to hear from her directly, her voice. Um, so this adds to, you know, the opinions and, and, and work that we're seeing from her. Um, and basically, the majority, her reasoning, the majority's reasoning centers on the interpretation of a clause of federal law that bars courts from reviewing immigration officials' judgments. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of putting air quotes and emphasis on the word judgments because there is a debate here as to what constitutes a judgment. And essentially, the court said broadly, just about any ruling <laughs> qualifies um, and that the only exceptions are for constitutional questions uh, or questions of law, meaning federal appeals courts can't step in to correct factual mistakes made by immigration courts. So these factual findings that these judges make are a pretty big deal when it comes to these immigration cases, right? They can be the difference between whether or not an immigrant petitioning for deportation relief gets to stay in the country or not, right, Natalie? That's right. And, you know, these findings are, you know, they delve deeply into the application that um, a petitioner is bringing to, for deportation relief, you know, and, you know, whether they're being truthful and whether, you know, they're making an accurate representation of their case for deportation relief. Okay, so what was the story in this case? So this case revolved around Pankash Kumar Patel, whose application to stop removal proceedings was rejected by an immigration judge um, be, who determined that Patel had falsely represented himself in 2008 when he checked off a box saying he was an American citizen on a driver's license application. Patel's argued it was a mistake, mistaken tick of the wrong box. Um, and Patel and the government went to the 11th Circuit you know, to review that decision saying, look, this was unintentional and it was inconsequential. You know, um, he didn't need American citizenship to obtain that driver's license in the state of Georgia where he resides. Um, the 11th Circuit, though, in a split set decision said it couldn't review the matter because it lacked the jurisdiction under this federal law, under these clauses that, you know, are at issue in the Supreme Court case. Um, but there's a circuit split on this. You know, other circuits have not kind of viewed the language of that statue in the same way. This is such a fascinating case. I mean, you have like this very small factual dispute and it comes down to a box that that one immigrant seeking a driver's license had checked off while he was seeking the driver's license. And the, the immigration judge says that, you know, I guess that's a basis to deny your uh, bid for deportation relief and then you have the circuits i mean it's just like it's crazy that this little tiny issue in this immigration proceeding has made it all the way up to the supreme court so why don't you tell me what happened at the supreme court so at the supreme court you know the government by the way the government's on the side of patel here right um is arguing that you know federal courts yes because of this law cannot review discretionary decisions and final judgments but they should be able to look at non-discretionary decisions, such as in this case, the eligibility of Patel under the law. Um, you know, Barrett, in short, says, look, the, you're wrong <laughs> about both the text and the context. Um, a judgment, and again, emphasis on the word judgment, that phrase does not necessarily have to involve discretion. And it does not, um, nor does the context kind of indicate whether it's covered by the law essentially so basically saying in short that 
you know, the, the courts can't second guess this immigration judge's finding that when Patel checked off this box in his driver's license application that he was falsely representing himself and thus disqualifying himself for deportation relief. So what about the dissents in this case? So there was a, I, I want to say, fairly hotly worded dissent. Um, Justice Neil Gorsuch actually penned it, um, and he was joined by Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Yeah, that's an interesting lineup there. Interesting lineup, right? Um, not often a split you see. Um, but And here, the, those justices are like, you are not reading this correctly. <laughs> you mm-hmm. are trying to get this language to do more than it actually does. Um, and, you know, I, I think, and, and, and Justice Gorsuch had um, some fairly like plain spoken criticisms of the majority's opinion in that, you know, look, federal bureaucracies make errors, you know, and I think we all know that things happen, mistakes, misspellings, wrongful ticks of boxes can happen on the part of the person, but also on part of like who's people who are in the bureaucracy and you know this kind of this decision you know could basically mean that the government's shielded from ever having to correct obvious errors of obvious bureaucratic errors at least in the realm of reviewing you know immigration proceedings like this yeah this is starting to make a little bit more sense to me now so so gorsuch is famously very um skeptical of what he calls these federal bureaucrats that make these decisions. And I almost feel like he takes umbrage at the idea that 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 Article Three judges, confirmed by the Senate, appointed by the president, you know, serving for life tenure, don't have the authority to review some of the decisions by these uh, uh, as he calls them, bureaucrats. So yes, that that does make a little bit more sense about why this lineup uh, happened in this case. Was there anything else of note to go over, Natalie, from from the from the decision Monday? So what I think Gorsuch and the dissenters were really hinging their arguments on was that, look, discretionary relief is a two-step process. The first step determines a non-citizen's eligibility. The second is, you know, whether they can actually get the relief. And that, you know, while the federal law bars review of that second step, that this first step on eligibility should should be considered fair game for federal appeals courts to be able to look at. With that, why don't we look to the other decision on Monday where the court ruled in favor of Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, obviously, and struck down part of a campaign finance law imposing restrictions on a campaign's ability to repay a loan from a candidate, from the candidate himself. So I don't know how much you remember about this case when we talked about it during when oral arguments took place, Natalie, but basically Ted Cruz, right, had had loaned his campaign about $260,000 back during his very expensive Senate re-election fight back in 2018. And he claims that due to kind of a number of restrictions in campaign finance law, that his campaign was unable to repay him the full amount of that loan and that he suffered a $10,000 monetary injury. And the Supreme Court agreed with him on Monday and basically said that the restrictions on these campaigns' ability to repay loans from the candidate himself is a violation of the First Amendment. It unconstitutionally restricts political speech and makes it less likely that candidates will self-finance and self-lend in these uh, in in you know in closely fought highly expensive campaign battles, and this is just the latest example of the Supreme Court kind of taking a very 
uh, robust approach to First Amendment protections for political spending, for money in politics. And so it was at once championed by Cruz himself on Monday as a big victory uh, for the First Amendment and for uh, uh, challengers to incumbents, and we can get into a little bit why he says that is. But at the same time, it was also decried by a lot of progressives and, and, and folks who say that there's way too much money in politics. And this is just the latest example of the Supreme Court striking down carefully considered congressional legislation that's trying to eliminate some of the ethical problems attendant in a lots of money in politics. So, Jimmy, can you tell me what some of these restrictions were and, and why the court struck them down? Yeah, so, th- so in these campaign finance cases, it's really easy to get into the weeds. So I'll try and be simple and, and make this pretty straightforward. But basically, there were restrictions under the 2002 campaign finance law known as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act that said that campaigns can only use up to $250,000 of funds raised after an election to repay a candidate's loans. So let's say that a candidate loans his campaign you know, a bunch of money and that you know, after the election, he's, the campaign still hasn't paid him back. And the campaign no longer has any money from, you know, donations before the election to pay him back. So what does the campaign do? It has to go out and solicit and collect new donations. Well, this law basically said that donations that come in after the election, they can only go up to $250,000. That's the cap. That's the amount of post-election money that they can use to retire the candidate's debt. And so the thinking behind the law at the time was that these elections that come in after the, or excuse me, these donations that come in after the election has already happened and you know who the winner is, let's say in this case it's Ted Cruz. Well, um, the, 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 the post-election donation from folks, uh, according to you know, a lot of the, the lawmakers who voted for this law, the thinking was that that posed kind of special ethical kind of risks because you have situations where donors, after an election, they can personally pay to retire a candidate's debt. They can actually put money in the candidate's own pocket to restore him or her to you know the, their full kind of pre-loan status. And so therefore the thinking was that these particular types of post-election donations pose these special quid pro quo risks where maybe you would have donors you know donating after the election to get special favors and things like that. Well, that law has long been a thorn in the side of candidates who want to make larger, loans to their their campaigns but fear that you know they would risk basically not being paid back because of the restrictions on the campaign's ability to collect d- donations after the election and the Supreme Court agreed and basically said that yes in a 6 to 3 ruling written by Chief Justice Roberts he says that you know this is a kind of this is going to have a chilling effect it's a unconstitutional burden on political speech and it's going to basically make candidates not want to make large donations or large loans, excuse me, to their campaigns out of fear of being left holding the bag if the campaign can't, you know, raise enough money to pay him or her back. And and he says that, Roberts explains that that could pose particular barriers to entry for people who are possibly challenging incumbents who have the odds stacked in their favor in every other respect for but, you know, maybe you have a candidate who wants to self-finance a challenge to that incumbent candidate, and these restrictions prevent them from doing that. Obviously, we got a very kind of uh, uh, fiery dissent from Justice Kagan in the case that said that the court's ruling falls in line with 
other campaign finance jurisprudence jettisoning Congress's considered anti-corruption efforts in favor of more money in the political process. And she kind of explains it in, 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 a, in a straightforward way here. She says, Repaying a candidate's loan after he has won election cannot serve the usual purposes of a contribution. The money comes too late to aid in any of his campaign activities. All the money does is enrich the candidate personally at a time when he can return the favor by a vote, a contract, an appointment. It takes no political genius to see the heightened risk of corruption, the danger of I'll make you richer and you'll make me richer arrangements between donors and office holders. And she says that basically this, these restrictions have stood for the last 20 years since the law was passed in 2002, and there's no reason to, to jettison them now. But of course, the Supreme Court has done that, and there will probably be, I suspect that the court's rationale could be used to attack other areas of campaign finance law and kind of unleash more money in the political arena. Well, I, I feel like you kind of answered my, my, my next question there, which is, you know, what's the potential impact here for the ruling? But it sounds like, you know, more money um, in the system and perhaps future cases. Well, certainly. And I, I think the upshot is this, right? So let's say you have a really rich candidate, you know, who wants to mount a substantial challenge to an incumbent, or maybe it's the incumbent him or herself. Well, now what this candidate can do as a specific result of this Supreme Court ruling, is loan as much money as he or she wants to to their campaign, and now the campaign itself can go out after the election and collect as much individual contributions as needed to retire that outstanding debt. Now, there's one caveat that I think is important to point out. There still is a $2,900 cap on individual contributions. So it's not as if someone after an election can come out and say, oh, uh, you know, Senator um, Jones from Alaska. That's not a senator. I just made him up. Um, senator Jones from Alaska has $2 million of, of, of debt um, after he won his, his Senate reelection campaign. You know, I, I got an oil pipeline business and I, I, I can write a big fat check for $2 million and make him whole again and he's going to, you know, give me all the permits that I want. They can't do that because there's still that $2,900 individual contribution limit. But they could potentially, you know, get situations where people go out on behalf of the candidate, him or herself, and collect enough of these individual contributions to satisfy and retire this debt. This is not necessarily all theoretical. There have been instances of this documented in the past. So I think we haven't seen kind of like fully the extent of what this ruling is going to mean, but certainly it means that there will be, uh, I, I think it's fair to say candidates can feel a little bit less hesitant to donate large sums to their own campaigns. Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us this week. Thanks again. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporter, Mike LaSusa. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. <laughs>